Today and next week, we're featuring ambient music from Nathaniel Krauss. Hear more at nathanielkrauss.bandcamp.com. Links and more on our website, ephemeral.show. Ephemeral is a production of iHeart 3D Audio. What draws us to places off the beaten path, seldom seen or only dreamed about? I think we're all born explorers in the sense that as soon as you learn how to walk, you kind of walk out of the house you're living and you start to wonder what's between you and the horizon. And as soon as you get to the horizon, you start to wonder what's beyond the horizon. That's the way we're born. Unfortunately, when you get a year and a half and two years old and five years old, you get corrupted by kindergarten, by your parents, by your friends, eventually by the school system, by the government. You never stop being an explorer, but gradually it's diluted, that spirit. And I also think we're kind of all born philosophers too, like, you know, thinking about thinking, thinking about big questions. That's something you do when you're two or three or four years old then you gradually stop doing that too. It's a better question like a friend of mine, the philosopher Arne Ness, was asked, why do you climb? And he replied, why did you stop? My name is Arling Kage. I'm from Norway. I'm a polar explorer, mountaineer, and I was the first in the world to reach the top of Everest and the North Pole and the South Pole by foot. This is the first of two episodes we'll run this month featuring Erling, who I interviewed remotely from a studio in Oslo. In addition to his legendary expeditions, Erling's also an art collector, the owner of a publishing company, the author of eight books, and just generally, a guy with a one-of-a-kind resume. I started out when I was 20 years old to sail across the Atlantic with three friends. Then we sailed back again when I was 21. And then I sailed first time to Antarctica with a Bermudan boat called War Baby in 86, 87. And then when I was 27, I walked with Berger Osland to the North Pole. Erling and Berger hold the Guinness World Record for being the first to reach the North Pole unsupported by airdrops. Strange thing is, at least my experiences, and I think also quite a few other explorers and other people's experiences that First, you get the idea, then you decide to do it, and then you start to figure out how to do it. Because if it's the other way around, you get the idea, then you start to figure out how to do it, you may give up quite quickly because it is too complicated, it's too demanding, and it's kind of too irrational to walk to the North Pole in over time. I was college, and I already been to Antarctica, have been doing different fairly extreme trips, and a guy, I knew him a little bit, he was an adventurer, and he said, you know, Erling, should we walk to the North Pole together? And I just felt like, this is great. And I didn't know much about it, and then Berge Åsland, today probably the world's leading polar explorer. I always wanted to see for myself what is behind the horizon. I always had that drive in me. We met him almost by accident, and we decided to go together. And we spent two years preparing, because expeditions, as many other things in life, all comes down to good preparations. If you're not really well prepared, you will fail. 
So we prepared for two years and um, started to walk from Northern Canada. When you say you prepared for two years, what I mean, what what are you doing? Obviously, you need to train physically to become super fit to drag a 250-pound sled through crevasses and you know rough ice. And you need to have the right food, so you know it's lots of physiology to make up with, like as many calories as possible per pound as you possibly can digest, because you're going to bring all the food with you for more than two months. And at least at that time, you need to design your own anoraks because you couldn't buy proper gear and to design the sledges. And then you need to raise money because neither of us had any, you know, sufficient of means. So we need to raise money, sponsorships. It's not a hobby, it's a total lifestyle. So for two years, I don't think I did any parties or anything like that. Just kind of worked really hard getting ready. And I was at school at the same time, but of course that suffered too. So it's kind of the most important thing in my life to get to the North Pole for those two years. It's a very egocentric thing to do. I wouldn't say it's egoistic because that's such a misused word, but it's certainly a very egocentric thing and maybe like, you know, also a little bit unsympathetic to focus so much on yourself and also to use nature as kind of a field for competitive thing. That's what quite a few people think and that's totally fair, but I'm proud of what I did. What kind of stuff do you care? I mean, what's on that 250-pound sled? You have about one kilo, which is about two pounds of food every day. And then you have fuel to melt ice and snow into water. And a little cooker, a sleeping bag, a mattress, and a tent, of course. We had like 1,253 grams of repair kit. So we didn't bring any spares. We could repair everything that broke down. And of course, when it's down to minus 54 centigrade, kind of everything breaks down. And it's so cold, like you're crying when you're peeing, at least when you're having a sh because it's so unbelievable cold. That was kind of everything we had in the sled. And it added up to 120, 25 kilos, which is about 260 pounds, I think. Did you say that one of your fillings broke and you had to replace your filling? Yeah. I was eating lunch and of course it was solid frozen and I broke one tooth and it was icing a lot. First I walked throughout the day with a painful tooth and then in the evening we heated up the tent and I laid back and opened my mouth. One guy was just keeping my mouth open and cleaned my tooth and then the other guy was filling it up with temporary filling. It worked really well. The dentist had a hell of a time to get it out again when I, <laughs> when I get back to Norway. How many days was that particular expedition? It was 58 days and nights. The Arctic is an ocean circumnavigated by continents with the North Pole on the top, while the South Pole, Antarctica, is a continent circumnavigated by oceans. So due to walk to the North Pole, we walked on drifting ice. Sometimes the ice breaks apart and, you know, its sea level is like 3,000 meters. So if you fall into the water, it's quite dramatic. Then it's even polar bears up there. It's 
So it's not super dangerous, but, you know, pretty dangerous and very difficult, I think, to walk to the North Pole. And that's why most people fail. How does that relationship, that interpersonal relationship, change over the days? And, and, and how do you sort of come to rely on each other? How do you re- interact with each other on a trip like that? It's quite interesting because I didn't know the guys, the two other guys, very well. And Guy, the guy who asked me at college if we should do it together, he had an accident early on, had to give up. And then it was Berge and myself, and we hardly knew each other. And we only knew each other because we had been preparing the expedition. So we kind of didn't have much in common at the time. So we hardly talked about anything but food because we were starving, because we were eating like 6,000 calories per person per day. It was too little, so we talked about food. We talked about being freezing cold. Beyond that, we totally focused on putting one leg in front of the other to get northwards. Because to walk to the North Pole, technical-wise, it's dead simple. You just need to put your leg in front of the other sufficient of times. That was our total main concern. Today, we are great friends. I think at that time, we're not great friends. We're just two guys who had the same goal that was totally dependent on each other. And I think that was a great advantage because if we had been close friends, had a you know, shared history, it's so much more to argue about. It's so much more to misunderstand. But we only had one goal. I think that was a good start. But also, like, I think, you know, one way you are totally hypnotized when you start on such an expedition. You are totally focused on heading one direction and what's behind you or to the left or to the right. Doesn't matter. All you want is to get to the North Pole. We hardly talked walking to the North Pole. And to the South Pole, I didn't talk at all. Maybe I said a few words, but I hardly talked for 51 or 52 days. Your next trip, you plan to go to the South Pole. You decide to go alone. Why do you decide to go alone? Several reasons. One, it's more difficult. And I believe in making life more difficult than it has to be. Of course, if I was born in southern Sudan, I would have thought differently about it. But as a Norwegian, it has to be more difficult, I think, to be meaningful. And also, I want to be the first to do something. So I didn't want to walk to the South Pole in the way someone else had done it before. Then I had you know, many good reasons I didn't express to myself. And afterwards, it was so much more interesting to be absolutely by myself. Not to meet any people, not to talk to anyone. It's not about turning your back to the world to be in silence for a while. To me, it was the opposite. It was about opening up to the world, thinking about people in a different way, with more respect, and loving the world even more. One thing which is easy on expeditions because sometimes it's really rough, really hard, really cold, you're suffering, is to swear. Oh, son of a... Get the fuck out of here. I never swear on expeditions because it only drags you down. Just the negative words, it drags you down. It's it's a total waste of time to swear. It makes life even worse. So that's another reason why I kept my mouth shut. You tell a story in the Silence book 
that I think when you're on the either the plane or the helicopter going to your like drop-in point that they made you take a radio is that right yeah I was forced to bring a radio by airline company that flew me out to the edge of the ice and my sponsor but of course I didn't want to be in touch with anyone so I cheated a little bit to stick to my ambition to be by myself I had to leave the batteries in the plane <laughs> To begin with, you are restless because you think about 850 miles or something to go. I'm not going to meet any people. No idea or some ideas, but no exact idea about how many days it's going to last. Then you kind of feel like a little bit desperate or you don't feel happy. But then as the hours and days pass by, you get into a rhythm and you start to enjoy life. It's a beautiful feeling. And it's not like a feeling you should be living by yourself for the rest of your life because we're all born social beings. But just like you have a break from the world. And as we've already talked about, like, you know, experiencing the world. And uh, sometimes not the whole expedition, but being in the present. So I'd rather say it was an absolutely beautiful experience. And I think most people would react the same way as me because it's in daily life it's kind of a very exotic idea to be by yourself for such a long time but I think if you had to most people would have enjoyed it in 1994 Erling set his sights on summiting Mount Everest becoming the first person to complete on foot what's known as the three poles challenge you know, it has similarities in the sense that you are very much a part of nature, that you feel that if you have been out there for a while, you kind of feel that your body doesn't stop by your skin or by your fingertips, but it's uh, extended into nature. So that's the similarity. High, high upon a mountain. It's not as dangerous as you read or hear in the media, but still it is dangerous. So you have to be very careful. But of course, you know, the difference between the poles are like, this is a mountain, this is a huge mountain. And it's so much bigger than I could have imagined before seeing the mountain. It's dramatic because if you fall, you don't fall into the water, which could be tough enough, but you can fall two or 3,000 meters. I think sometimes if they hear people claiming it's easy to climb Everest, but usually the people who didn't get to the summit. I think everybody who had been to the summit agrees it's really tough going to get to the summit. How's the view? <laughs> uh, you know, when people tell you they climb Everest because they want to see the view, it's not absolutely accurate, I think. <laughs> I love the view, but you know, the view from the next mountain is even better because then you can see everything in perspective. So uh, <laughs> I got to the summit and I was moved. I was so happy. I was almost crying. But then shortly afterwards, you know, my next feeling was how in hell should I get down again? because to get down from the mountain is kind of more dangerous than getting to the summit because you easily feel more confident, less self-critical. You're starting to take small chances and suddenly it's fatal. To my experience, most accidents are happening on the way down from the mountains and not on the way up. Snowflakes are falling, adventure is calling, the Yukon is deep in snow. 
Do you think there's something about the simplicity required by that life, having everything on your back or on your sled and, and hiking or climbing that like affects your sense of pleasure and reward? things seem maybe more easily rewarding than they would in like a normal sort of workaday life? Yeah, that's certainly true. You're so much more present. So it's like, you know, philosophers are writing about uh, existentialism, but to be on an expedition way out in the polar regions or close to the summit of Everest is like existentialism in real life. You're so present. And I think one of the most beautiful feelings you can have is to be freezing cold and then get warm again. That's the best feeling. And of course, the disadvantage of being warm all the time that you're not appreciating it. Just like, you know, if you have been healthy throughout your own life, you don't appreciate. You don't feel grateful for being healthy if you're always healthy. Time is not linear. And to have these variations in life makes life feel longer. There's a Norwegian saying that I think translates in English to much wants more. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's a Norwegian saying. I'm sure they have to know the languages too, but at least we say it in Norwegian. Mye vil ha mer. Mye is much vil want mer more. If you have a lot of things in your life, you just want more and more things. It's this kind of the opposite of the old wisdom that... If you're going to live a happy life, you need to keep your pleasures simple. Do you think something that's too easily obtained can lose its sense of pleasure? Like, I think of this as the, the aphorism, like, no pain, no gain. Yeah, absolutely. I'm very much believing in struggling, uh, fighting hard, not getting things too easy in life. Of course, both you and me, we should be careful not romantizing about it because of course many people are to talk like this is almost obnoxious because you know they have a daily fight just to survive and support their families but uh, for me it's uh, maybe sounds a bit strange to say but for me it's different because I live in quite normal Norwegian middle class life I grew up in a typical Norwegian middle class family and then you have to make your life more difficult and you have to struggle. And I think it's super important to struggle. But because people I know who has not been struggling, who have been spoiled throughout their whole lives, they get very boring. And they quite often complain that their lives are short, that there's not much excitement going on. So I don't think it's healthy. I think life is a struggle. It should be a struggle. The difference between walking or climbing up to the top or a mountain compared to use a helicopter up to the same place. You know, it doesn't re relate. Even the view at the summit is totally different if you fly on a helicopter. You need to struggle a little. You need to use some time. You need to feel the environment. You need to kind of become a part of nature if you're going to appreciate climbing a mountain. One of the meanings of life is to fulfill your own potentials. And if you're going to do that, we really have to Get up and live an active life and you need to think, you need to experience, you need to read, you need to talk to people, you need to move around, you need to be moved. Just when you get up in the morning, like, you know, if you are a fairly privileged life, you don't even need to get up from bed. You can just stay in bed and your mother will eventually give you food because she feels sorry for you. She can just remain in bed. 
to just get up in the morning. After that, everything kind of feels nicer and easier. And then throughout the whole day, it is very much about making life more difficult than it has to be. Of course, I'm more eager than most of the people on it. And then the beauty of not giving a shit about it and sometimes just remain in bed. Variety is important. I want to talk about a couple more expeditions that you did in the U.S. 2010, I think, right, you went to New York and you did two very different kinds of walks. Yeah, I'd walk like five days and nights together with your fellow American Steve Duncan, who's an urban historian and urban explorer. Cities shape their environment, and the way they do that is through infrastructure. With some other people, I came and went, went to northern Bronx and walked through New York City, uh, partly through the train, water, subway, and sewage systems. That is, beneath the city streets, navigating the literal underbelly of New York City. You straight up like went up to like a manhole cover and just lifted it up and just, just dropped in, right? Yeah. Sometimes you could climb some fences and get into a tunnel or something, but like just in Green Street, uh, lower Manhattan. We just waited until there was no cars and then ran over to the manhole and climbed in and plink, plump, and the manhole was back again and we were done in the dark. <laughs> so up in Northern Bronx, we went into the sewage and walked down to Harlem and then kind of crisscrossed the city through these tunnel systems out to Jamaica Bay, the Atlantic Ocean. And we had to get above ground to change tunnels. Of course, you can walk a subway tunnel through all of Manhattan, but we want to have the variety. We want to just see the city from the inside out and see what the city would look like if we turned it upside down. And it was great crossing the city with a backpack, with a sleeping bag, little mattress, little cooker, hip waders or chest waders. It's no hardship, it's not like another expedition, it's kind of easy going. And uh, I guess the biggest risk was to be caught by the police. We were even laughing sometimes, we were kind of laying flat in the sewage. In Soho we got absolutely soaking wet, oh shit. It was a pretty crazy expedition. And even some people living down there, not in the sewage, but in train tunnels. I really like New York City. And again, I was partly driven by curiosity to get to know New York City even better. I'm not thinking about that expedition or like other expeditions unless I talk about it. Even to me, it sounds strange thinking about it. But fortunately, I sat down afterwards to write down what we had been through, because if you do it several years later, it's a different story. So fortunately, I wrote it down. What I write my book to is kind of based upon what I wrote in 2010. So it's pretty accurate. I'm super happy we did that expedition and, and we didn't get sick. On that same trip to New York, after experiencing the city from the inside out, Steve and Erling saw it from the top down. We climbed Williamsburg Bridge. But you know, it's not really climbing. You have to climb some gates. So it's a little bit risky, not super risky. And then it's almost like stairs getting you to the top. 
The biggest risk there is someone sees you and uh, report you to the police. Like my friend Steve said, when it's on the top of the bridge and suddenly it's absolutely quiet down on the street below you, then you're in deep shit because then the police has closed off the bridge. <laughs> so, so it's what, like, it's like super early in the morning and you just go to the very top of the Williamsburg Bridge and you have no permission to do it. You know, you don't get that permission. I would be very happy to get that permission if it was possible. But of course, they will never give you a permission. So you have to do it without a permission. I'm not recommending anyone to do it because, you know, it's not legal. That's one thing. But another thing, it's like all this is a little bit dangerous. To me, it was worth it. If it's worth it for you, I don't know. The beauty is that when you're standing there, we had a sunrise over seeing into Brooklyn and Queens beyond that, the Atlantic. Of course, New York City is very much about making money and making money makes lots of noise. But as I said, it was at night, early in the morning. So it was fairly peaceful on the top of the bridge. And to see a city kind of low and early in the morning, the city is still asleep and to see the sun is rising, it's a fantastic experience and a very enriching experience and made me feel grateful. I think more people should get up in the morning to see the sunrise because that puts your life into perspective. There's one more walk I want to talk about. Um, you went in, I think 2012, you went to Los Angeles and walked from where to where? We walked Cesar Chavez Avenue, which is kind of east in LA. Walked down Cesar Chavez and into Sunset Boulevard. And then we walked Sunset Boulevard out into the Pacific Ocean kind of walking through the whole city. We didn't leave Cesar Chavez and Sunset Boulevard at all, so we just followed those two streets. We could probably have done it in one long day, but we had three nights sleeping, and we did whatever you can do in LA on those streets. We didn't see anything that you don't see if you're driving, but it's kind of, we saw it in slow motion, and we saw it from a different angle, because we saw it from the curb of the road. So for the first time in my life, I did manicure and pedicure, for me as Norwegian, I thought it was very exotic because it's so many pedicure and manicure saloons in LA. You kind of get the feeling that everybody is kind of doing pedicure on each other. We went into the Church of Scientology and had 90 minutes consultation and the church concluded that we were all insane, but they could help us. And then we went to all kinds of bars and, you know, restaurants, etc. And uh, first night we slept at a hotel called Value Inn, which was kind of a hotel we knew bring a person to maybe for half an hour or two hours and go back home again. Just doing whatever you could do on those two streets was not even dangerous, just kind of interesting and fun to see LA. Was it on this trip that you got stopped by the cops for walking because it just looks suspicious? Yeah, actually, that's kind of a cliche. I had read this novel from the 50s that kind of this guy was speculating what's going to happen in the future. And... It happened to us in East LA. It was a pretty rough neighborhood. So the police guy was just kind of wondering, you know, why do you walk here with a small backpack each? Got a little bit suspicious. And we told him what we were doing and he was very nice. He just said, would you like to take a photo with me? <laughs> so it was a very nice policeman. Did you experience any kind of catharsis hitting the Pacific Ocean? Yeah. 
pretty slowness approaching the Pacific. I've been driving through LA, of course, when it's lots of cars, you move slowly, but then you're kind of pissed off again and time moves fast because nothing is happening. Or it's like, at this life, feel a little bit meaningless because nothing is happening. This time you're walking, so towards the oceans, it felt meaningful and it felt like so many things to see and to experience and to think. And then eventually you get to the ocean, you jump into the ocean, you have a swim, and then you go to this Gladstones, I think the restaurant is at the end there, and you have a cocktail and life is great. You got any big expeditions planned or things that you want to do? No, no. After this, I jump on my bike and go home to cook for my kids. <laughs> that's, uh, that's my thing today. And I will do some hiking tomorrow, day after tomorrow. I will go on long expeditions again, most likely. Of course, nobody knows anything, but somehow some of the biggest mysteries in life or in the world is in your own backyard, I think. To Erling's earlier point, if we are all born explorers and in tandem philosophers, what is it that each of us might be looking for? For Erling, the answer was silence, not only in his surroundings, but silence of the mind. That's next episode. This episode of Ephemeral was written and assembled by Alex Williams, with producers Max Williams and Trevor Young, and editing by Rima Ilkayali. Special thanks to Nitro Sound in Oslo, Norway, and to Andrew Howard for gifting me a copy of Silence in the Age of Noise, which, along with Walking One Step at a Time, are the books by Erling Kage on which this conversation was based. Find them wherever books are sold, and find us on the World Wide Web at Ephemeral Show. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.